uh, but we're going to be looking at a whole lot of scripture today, but as far as Genesis 3, it'll just be uh, verses 14 and 15 that we'll be reading together. So in the first two chapters of this book of Genesis, we see that all things, including human beings, were created by God. These two chapters give us insight both into how we came into being and the task that was given when God brought mankind into being. So Adam and Eve, the first human beings, our first parents, were created in the image of God. They were made to be faithful representatives of God. And they were to accurately reflect God in the responsibilities that they were given in ruling over the world and all of its creatures. And one example we see briefly of this in Scripture is God creates animals, and then he gives Adam the task of naming all the animals that he made. So this is delegated responsibility. God is the capital K-I-N-G king over creation, and he makes Adam and Eve these uh, little representatives, little rulers. In our context here in the the United States, we have a president and a vice president who rules underneath the president. And maybe in similar fashion, we could say that God was the ultimate ruler, and he made Adam and Eve little r rulers underneath him. So in all that they did, in all that Adam and Eve did, they were to carry out God's commands in God's way as they ruled the world on his behalf. So all living creatures in the air, on land, and in the sea were placed under the dominion and care of mankind. And in addition to this, one of the responsibilities that we see uh, early on in Scripture was that Adam and Eve were to work and take care of the Garden of Eden. So God planted the garden, and then he gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to tend it and to take care of it. But when we come to Genesis 3, we're presented with a scene in which a serpent, later revealed in the New Testament as Satan, comes to Eve and deceives her into eating from the only tree in the garden that God said was off limits. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was outside the sphere of access for these representatives of God. As I said earlier, they had to do things in God's way. So in this particular case, that meant not eating from that tree. But once Satan came in and deceived the woman, she ate from the tree anyway. So in this scene, interestingly, we see a reversal of the call for humans to rule over creation. In Genesis chapter 3, what we see happening is a creature, a serpent, that she was supposed to be ruling over, that Eve was supposed to be ruling over, managed to rule over her. Satan, this serpent, got the upper hand on Eve and... After she eats, Adam also joins in the disobedience against God and ate the fruit along with her. And I believe that it's important for us to connect the dots of this story with later revelation in Scripture. And just real quick, it's something really helpful in Bible reading is when you read a portion of Scripture that you feel fuzzy on, it's always good to see, is there later uh, light given in Scripture concerning what this means? Cain and Abel is a good example. We read about it in the Old Testament, chapter 4, but then on in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, 1 John, we also read about that story. So it's helpful when we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And that's uh, something that happens here for us as well. So um, it seems in all likelihood that at this point, when Eve gave in to the deception of the serpent, he managed to become what Jesus calls him in John 12 as the ruler of this world. So I said earlier, Adam and Eve were to rule the world, but in John chapter 12, Jesus calls the serpent, Satan, the ruler of this world. Under God's sovereignty, Satan had usurped the authority given to Adam and Eve through their sin. So the world and humanity came under the power of the evil one through Adam and Eve's disobedience. 
And if you could just keep this in mind, we're going to come back uh, and look at this point again uh, later on. So although Adam and Eve were punished by God for their disobedience, there were various punishments that God dealt out, as you probably remember in Genesis 3. Uh, the human race was also plunged into a state of sin and death from that point on. But although those things are true, the serpent does not get to go free. So Adam and Eve were responsible for their disobedience, but the serpent was also responsible for his deception. He doesn't get off the hook in this matter. And in fact, God actually puts a curse on the serpent for deceiving Eve. And that's what I uh, would like to invite you to look at with me in Genesis chapter 3. So we'll be reading uh, verses 14 and 15, but focusing in on chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 15. So the scripture says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, so that's again in response to his deception, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or the NIV, crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we're going to divide the content of verse 15 into two parts or two points. The first point that we're going to, uh, that I want to divide this into is the declaration of war. The declaration of war. We see this in the first half of the verse. And then the second point is the declaration of victory, which is found in the second half of the verse. So our, our two points, the declaration of war and the declaration of victory. I'd like to briefly introduce these two points uh, before we start looking at how this plays out in the storyline of the Bible. So you'll see the first of these two points in the words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So once again, this is God talking to the serpent and he declares that he is the one, Yahweh is the one who will make these two sides to be at odds with one another. God says, I will put enmity. He's the one that's going to put hostility or animosity or an antagonism between these two sides. So who are these two sides that will be opposed to one another? While it may seem that this is just talking about human beings and snakes not getting along with one another, when we bring in the whole of Scripture, it actually helps us to see a clearer picture of what's going on here. This is spiritual in nature. What God is talking about is spiritual in nature. God had separated physical light from physical darkness in Genesis chapter 1, and now here in Genesis 3, it's as though that God is separating spiritual light from spiritual darkness. God is making a divide. And so the woman, Eve, represents the side of light, the side of God, uh, God's people. And the serpent represents the side of darkness, the side of evil, those who are opposed to God and his people. So in this war, in this spiritual war, the snake and all those who are associated with him or his offspring are on one side while Eve and all those associated with her or her offspring are on the other. And I think it's amazing that although Eve had just been deceived in deciding with the serpent against God, the Lord shows her mercy and puts her on his side, on the Lord's side, in opposition to the serpent. So that's the first point, the declaration of war. Now we come to the second point uh, in our verse. If you could look back at the second half of Genesis 3.15. God speaking to the serpent says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So a second ago, we saw the big picture, two sides, two teams collectively, and now we zoom in and God tells the serpent, He, 
that is a singular offspring of the woman will bruise or crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So maybe ask the kids in here, if you, are there any? A couple kids. If you had to choose between a bruising your heel or getting a head injury, which one would you choose? Anybody? I think, I think we know the answer to that. I think we would choose the heel bruise. Although those do hurt, but a head injury, if you've ever hit your head, that's going to be much worse. Um, obviously, this is poetic language that God is using, but he's painting a picture of victory for the side of the woman. There will be an offspring, a seed, a great-grandchild, a descendant of Eve who will come and crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the serpent who deceived the woman and led the human race into sin. Notice, though, Adam is not the one to do it. Eve is not the one to do it. God doesn't tell Adam, hey, go destroy that serpent. The reality is they can't do it. They have now come into a state of sin and separation from God, and although he is showing them mercy, they can't be the one to redeem the human race. They can't be the one to win a victory over Satan. But one day, the snake who deceived Eve will be under the foot of one of her offspring. And this is a pr prophetic picture. All, I mean, we're only three chapters into the Bible, and we get this prophecy of victory for the side of God's people. But notice also at the end of... Um, Verse 15, the five words, you shall bruise his heel. That's, again, that's God talking to the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. So this victory over the serpent that will be coming down the line will not come without suffering. God is painting a picture of pain. There, there is, it, the victory over the serpent will come at a cost. So the end of the war is declared from the beginning. God's, gonna, God's telling us who wins in this war but it will be painful. Victory is certain, but it is going to be painful. It will come at a cost. There will be suffering involved. So his heel, that is the, the offspring of Eve, his heel must be bruised in order to overcome Satan and crush his head. So we'll come back to this point uh, later on as well. So we have these two points in Genesis 3.15, declaration of war, declaration of victory, and then we come to the very next chapter in Genesis 4, and we see a picture of this warfare already in motion. You don't have to go very far to see uh, this warfare in motion. We're not going to read it, but I'm just going to summarize for you. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And the New Testament, interestingly, comments on this situation saying that Cain was of or from the evil one. So spiritually speaking, Cain was an offspring of the serpent. He was of the evil one, and killed his brother. But on the other hand, Abel was a believer in Yahweh, and Jesus referred to him in the New Testament as righteous Abel. So almost immediately after we read about this declaration of war in Genesis chapter 3, we see warfare taking place in Genesis chapter 4. Righteous Abel is murdered by unrighteous Cain. And this warfare is a theme that we will see throughout the Old Testament. I just want to give you a few more uh, examples from the Old Testament. So Isaac, the Bible says in the New Testament that he was born according to the Spirit. And Paul says that he was persecuted by Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh. So you have Isaac, born of the Spirit, Ishmael, born of the flesh. Ishmael persecutes Isaac. Or for instance, when we come to the Exodus, in, in the book of Exodus, 
After Jacob's family had moved down to Egypt and multiplied, growing into a great nation, the king of Egypt essentially tries to exterminate the descendants of Jacob by having all the baby boys cast into the Nile River. So keep that in mind, that, um, or, or I should say keep in mind that the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent was to come from the line of Judah. And here we, in the book of Exodus, we have the king of Egypt trying to destroy all the, all the Hebrew baby boys. Is it a coincidence that he wants all the boys dead when God is going to fulfill his promise through this family line, through this nation? Or another example, fast forward to 2 Samuel. We meet David who faced serious opposition from his enemies, such as King Saul who tried to kill him multiple times, or his own son Absalom. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the book of Psalms. They're filled with poetic descriptions, chapter after chapter, about David's life and the sufferings that came to him as a result of his enemies who were bent on his destruction. This is a picture of that warfare, that Genesis 3 warfare in motion. Or let me pose the question to you. Can you think of any Genesis 3.15 warfare that goes on in the book of Esther? Who's who's the villain in the book of Esther that wants to destroy all the Jews? It's Haman. Haman, a man named Haman, wants to annihilate all the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. He wants to completely destroy them. But in, a, in an ironic twist, Haman ends up being destroyed when his plan is backfired. What he set up for God's people ended up coming back on his own head. And so, again, the point there that I just want to make is that the war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent continues throughout the Old Testament and throughout the entire Bible as well. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson wrote that the Bible's narrative is essentially an unfolding of the conflict promise embedded in Genesis 3.15. Those are, those are big words for uh, Genesis 3.15. He said it's essentially, the Bible's story is basically that verse being played out. And as I said, not only does it weave throughout the Old Testament, it weaves throughout the New Testament as well, and that's where we find the culmination. So, a couple examples, uh, an example here from the New Testament. If we fast forward to John chapter 8, uh, which Pastor Aaron's teaching through John right now, you may remember that Jesus is having a conversation with a group of Jews who are seeking to kill him. And he says to them, very interestingly, so think in light of Genesis 3.15, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus says, your father is the serpent. And the desire that Jesus talked about, your will is to do your father's desires, that will is to murder Christ. So in this context, Jesus is saying, you're being like your dad. You want to murder me just like your father is a murderer. They're acting like their spiritual father. And so if the devil is their father, as Jesus says, spiritually speaking, that would make them his offspring. They are offspring of the serpent. And that brings our minds back again to Genesis 3.15. But this indictment here that Jesus gives, which is, it's a heavy word. He says, you are of your father, the devil. It's not only for that group of people. It's not only for these certain Jews who wanted to kill Christ. The same statement could be made and is made of all of us by nature. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 2 puts it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the serpent. 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says, we all were following the prince of the power of the air. We all were following the serpent. We were all disciples of the dragon. And maybe some of you in here can remember a time before you trusted in Christ that you harbored hostility towards the Lord, towards Christians, towards the gospel, towards anything, anything Christian. You wanted nothing to do with Christ. That was that hostility being played out in your heart and in your life. And again, as Paul says, we all once lived that way. We all at one time were following the serpent. We all wanted to do our father's desires. That is, we wanted to oppose God. Our hearts were closed off to the Lord. By nature, we were taken captive by Satan to do his will. And our heart's desire was, the serpent's will be done. Certainly, most of us would not have said that, expressed that in so many words, but that was the desire of our heart. That was the direction that we were going. I'll give you a really kind of funny example, uh, but I think, it, I think it relates well. In the 1991 film Hook, I don't know if anyone remembers, Peter Pan, Robin Williams, Peter Pan's children were kidnapped by Captain Hook, and in a scene where Peter Pan goes to get them back from Captain Hook, Peter Pan reached out his hand to his son Jack, who's all dressed, he's like a mini Captain Hook. He's got all the garb, he looks just like Captain Hook, and Peter Pan says, Jack, give me your hand, we're going home. And Jack, his son, says, I am home. So this is Peter Pan's son, dressed up like Captain Hook, and when his dad comes to rescue him, he says, I am home. And Captain Hook says, this is his son, and he loves him dearly. So what Jack needed in that moment is not merely physical rescue from the situation, although that is part of it. He also needed a change of mind. He believed that he was at home with the villain. And in a similar but much greater way, we human beings like Jack consider home to be found with the serpent. By nature, we are enslaved and brainwashed into thinking we're home with Satan, with sin, with rebellion against God. We need to be rescued. We need to be forgiven. We need new hearts. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 was that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And what's amazing about that for us is that through this painful victory, a multitude of people from every tribe and every tongue will be set free from spiritual darkness and brought to the side of, of light. And when we arrive at the beginning of the New Testament, we see that the time of fulfillment of God's promises has come. The capital O offspring of Eve, the king of kings, who will crush the head of the serpent, has finally arrived, being born of the Virgin Mary. And not surprisingly, after Jesus is born, what happens? King Herod attempts to kill him. He has all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killed. All that were two years and younger, killed. Now, remember, think back to the king of Egypt, what he tried to do to all the Hebrew baby boys. Had, tried to have them exterminated, thrown in the Nile River. Here we see Herod acting like the king of Egypt, acting like the serpent, trying to kill the sinless Christ child. Now, again, who do you think was fueling that plan to kill Christ? Certainly it was the devil. He's trying to crush the head of Jesus while he was still a child. And so the war, as we see in the New Testament, is still underway hasn't stopped. 
And after Jesus grows up, the Lord intervenes, has Joseph and Mary, their family, flee to Egypt. After they come back, Jesus grows up. There's multiple occasions where people wanted to kill Christ. There's one instance where some people try to throw Jesus off of a cliff, but his time had not yet come. But then at, near the end of the Gospels, we see that the time has finally arrived for the offspring of Eve to do cosmic combat with the devil. And when we come near to the end of John's Gospel, I think it's worth noting for our purposes that Satan enters into Judas. John writes that Satan enters into Judas. And what, is, and what does Judas do after that? He betrays Jesus into the hands of those who are seeking to kill him. And Jesus, knowing full well the spiritual nature of what was taking place and having full control over the day of his death, told them, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. At the very least, I think what we can glean from Jesus' words is that this is demonic power at work. You're coming to arrest me. You want to charge me. You want to kill me. Jesus says, this is the power of darkness. The serpent has sent his offspring to destroy Christ and to try to crush his head. Jesus is then wrongly accused and sentenced to die. And then at the end of the Gospels, we come to Golgotha, where the offspring of the woman is crucified, bloody and hanging lifeless on a Roman cross. From an outsider's perspective, it looks like the serpent has crushed the head of the Messiah. But in fact, that's actually not what happened at all. This death of Jesus Christ is a heel bruise from which Jesus will recover. I think that heel bruise language emphasizes the temporary nature of it. Jesus was crushed for a time. He was bruised for a time. But there is resurrection on the other side. This suffering is temporary. And this death of Jesus Christ, which will be followed by resurrection three days later, is actually the means through which the serpent's head would be crushed. How does, how does that work? I, this is, I remember, I think there's a time where this puzzled me. Like, how does that work? How is Jesus crushing the head of the serpent through his own death? How does that work? How does he achieve victory over the devil on the cross? I mean, again, in, with our limited uh, our, our human eyes, our physical eyes, we think death on a cross looks like defeat. But first of all, I think what's really important in understanding how this works, how Jesus' victory works, is that this, the death of Jesus Christ was substitutionary in nature. That is, he died in the place of others. He died in your place. He switched places with those who should have died, who actually were guilty and who had sinned. And the scriptures tell us that Christ bore both our sins in his body and that Yahweh crushed him. That's Isaiah 53, verse 10. So Jesus takes our sin upon him and the punishment that we deserve. Jesus carries our sins away into the dark land of death. And then he comes back three days later in a glorified body, our punishment having been dealt with and our sins being no more. This is foundational to understanding how Jesus' death works victory. But so again, we haven't gotten to the actual point. How does that substitutionary death for us, bearing our sin, bearing our punishment, how does that translate to crushing the serpent? And one of the most helpful explanation, explanations that I've heard uh, that I think will help us to answer that question comes from a man named George Smeaton, 
who said sin was the ground or foundation of Satan's dominion, the sphere of his power and the secret of his strength. And no sooner was the guilt lying on us extinguished than his throne was undermined, as Jesus himself said in John 12, 31. When the guilt of sin was abolished, Satan's dominion over God's people was ended. So remember, uh, at the beginning of this sermon, I, I mentioned how uh, Satan gained power over mankind through sin. Remember, that was the doorway. That was the, that was the opportunity that Satan got a foothold over mankind, that he got, took that opportunity to become ruler over mankind. It was through sin back in the garden. So we may say it like this. Sin is the foundation of Satan's throne. He holds human beings under the power of death through our sin. But when Jesus dies to take away sin and rises from the dead, he takes away the serpent's power. He throws Satan down from his throne. As Jesus said in John 12, 31, before he went to the cross, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It was through that death, that sin-bearing death, that Satan would be cast out. So Christ has crushed the head of that ancient dragon, this, the ruler of this world. Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ now possesses the keys of death and Hades, that is the realm of the dead. He has authority over them. Sin has been dealt with, death has been conquered, and the devil has been cast down from his high place. Jesus, the obedient son of Eve, has overcome. And not only that, but one day the defeat of the snake will be realized in its fullness. The culmination of this crushing will take place when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever, as Revelation 20 says. The serpent currently now roams around like a lion as a defeated foe, seeking someone to devour, but one day he will roam around no more. And so we've seen a quick picture, a snapshot picture of this cosmic battle and various battles that occurred throughout the scriptures. And it's important to remember, as I had already said, that we are all caught up in this. So this is not something that just took place within the Bible and stopped there. This is something that we are all caught up in. This battle, this spiritual warfare overflows from the scriptures into each one of our lives. All of us in this room and in this world are on one of two sides, as we saw in Genesis 3.15. We're either on the side of the woman or the side of the serpent. We're either on the side of light or the side of darkness. We're either on the side of righteousness or the side of unrighteousness. We're either children of God or children of the evil one. And so I would just ask each of us, which side are you on? For those of us who have come to the side of light by grace, through faith in Christ, I want to encourage you this morning with the words of the Apostle John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, John says, you have overcome the evil one. You have, believer in Christ, overcome the serpent. But apart from Christ and his work, John could not say this. Remember, it wasn't Adam who crushed the serpent by himself, Eve. It wasn't any one of us. It's through Christ and his work on the cross and resurrection that we have victory over the serpent. No longer are we captives enslaved to doing the serpent's bidding. No longer do his accusations hold weight against us. We are free in Christ. We're counted righteous and we are God's children now. 
And that being the case, it is fitting and right that all of us who belong to the Lord would walk in a way that is consistent with our victory in Christ. It is right that we now, as the spiritual offspring of Eve, the collective offspring of Eve, would walk like Jesus Christ. And part of living this way involves throwing off the old ways. Maybe we could say it like this. Sin is a reflection of the serpent's image. Disobedience to God is a salute to Satan. So anything in our lives that reflects the image of the serpent, whether that's in deed or thought, word, attitude, whatever it may be, that has connection to the snake is to be put off. It is to be thrown away, cast aside, turned away from. For example, lying to other people is an echo of the serpent's voice. It has to go. Deceiving other people, twisting truth, maybe in our business practices, that's how Satan operates. We can't live that way anymore. And maybe for you kids at home, disobedience to parents may feel like a small thing when you're a kid, but it's an example of fighting against authority. That's, Satan's the king of that. The Satan is the king of rebelling against God's authority. And so we are to turn away from that. Even in our youth, if we know the Lord, we are to turn away from disobedience to our parents. Or another example, hatred towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. John says the one who hates his brother is a murderer. And a murderer is what Jesus called Satan in the book of John. Other examples, I mean, the list could go on, but other, a few other examples would include pride, unrighteous anger, gossip, impatience with our spouse or our kids, a love of money, unbelief, hypocrisy. The point is, if we belong to Christ, that old way of living is not us anymore. That is no longer who we are. That, that person that was addicted to sin, that loved sin, that followed the serpent, died with Christ. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And so that being the case, we are no longer to live like the old sin addicts that we once were. So we pray and we fight to walk in a deeper experience of the victory that we have in Christ. At the same time, not only do we throw off the old ways, that's, that's certainly part of it, but we are also to put on new ways of living as well. So we, we no longer seek to walk in reflection of the serpent's image, but we do seek to reflect the image of Christ. We seek to put on Christ-like character with the help of the Holy Spirit. So not only do we say no to the serpent, but as new creations, we say yes to the lamb and we follow him wherever he goes. For example, this would include pursuing deeper, more mature levels of faith in God our Father like Jesus had. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. We want to mimic Jesus in this. We sit under the Word of God both personally and collectively uh, in, our, in our church family, and we ask the Lord to grow us and develop our faith as we hear about Christ in the Scriptures. We ask the Lord to help us in areas that we have unbelief or, or lacking faith and we ask him to grant us a deeper, more mature faith. We want to have a faith like Jesus. And Paul tells us, related to this spiritual warfare, Paul tells us that faith is a shield which extinguishes all the fiery darts of the evil one. So faith in God's promises, faith in God's gospel is a shield that protects us from the lies, accusations, and deception of the serpent. We need faith in this Christian walk. For example, like when we, when we sin, say, say you sin, some particular area you sin, you struggle with, and you feel condemned, like God is done with you, 
Faith can say along with Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. We fight the dragon's fire with gospel truth. Faith in God's gospel truth. And we also seek to cultivate love, to put on love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ and even our enemies, those who persecute us, those who do not side with the Lord, that fight against us. Jesus calls us to bless them. Now, how, how do we put on love? How, what, what, is, what, is, what, is, what is one of the means of cultivating and putting on love and compassion? One of the ways that we do this is by meditating on Christ's great love for us. We gaze upon the Lord in the scriptures. We meditate on his wounds, his death, his resurrection. And as we do that, as we behold him with eyes of faith, we begin to be changed. The Holy Spirit changes us and makes us more and more like Christ. We also want to seek to put on joy in Christ in the midst of trials, remembering that God will make all things new in the end, remembering that the victory belongs to Christ. We also seek to be peacemakers with others as God has made peace with us through Christ. We put on patience towards our spouse and our kids as the Lord has been patient and is being patient with us. We seek to put on kindness towards angry neighbors. We seek to put on gentleness towards those who are difficult to be around. We seek to put on self-control or not being enslaved to anything, whether that be moral or immoral. We seek to have an open-heartedness and generosity towards those who are in need. And we invite those who have sided with the serpent to come to the side of the lamb. We preach the gospel. We invite people to believe in Jesus and spread that good news of how people just like us can be reconciled to God. And we do this in the midst of the world's scoffing and rejection. We are still in war. And I'm sure many of you have felt the sting of being a Christian, being on the Lord's side in this world. Maybe some of you have felt opposition at work for being a Christian, especially it seems like in America these days, things are heating up towards Christians. Uh, maybe from family members. Maybe some of you know what that's like to be, even though you're in the same family, you're on different teams. I, that's something I experience in my, in my family. I want to encourage you that Jesus felt that before you. He said, if they hated you, remember that they hated me first. Jesus knows, he understands what it's like to be opposed by the world. And God is with you as you endure these things for his name. So the list goes on, and I just want to make, you know, just throw this out, throw out a couple questions for those of you uh, who are here this morning. What are some areas that you can make a point to be in pursuit of this coming week? So we've heard some different examples. We, we, we've heard about how we are to throw off serpent-like ways and we're to put on Christ-like ways. I would just ask you, what are some particular areas that you can be pursuing this week? What are some things that you need to ask the Lord for help in putting off? And what are some things that you need to ask the Lord for help in putting on? And maybe you can talk to others uh, in church or in a small group about these things and you can make it a point to pursue these various areas in the, in the coming days. But please remember that we live this Christian life from a place of victory. We live the Christian life from a place of objective victory in Christ. And so I just want you to be encouraged in that struggle. We're, we're all in it. And there's still a lot of serpent-like behavior that needs to go. This is a progressive work. It's not done yet. It won't be done until Christ returns. But God is with us. And um, he is faithful. And he will bring the good work that he started in you to completion on the last day. And finally, 
before we close, for those of you who are not Christians, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible teaches that we are all by nature siding with the serpent. We are all his spiritual children. The serpent's venom is in our blood, and the only cure that is potent enough to rescue us is the blood of Christ. That means the death of Jesus Christ is where hope is found. Hope of forgiveness, freedom, and reconciliation is found in the death and resurrection of Christ. He alone is the only way out of the kingdom of darkness. And so the good news, the the promise for us is that whoever turns from their sin, they put down their weapons, they stop fighting against God, and they trust in Christ, they will be forgiven and brought to the the side of light by God's grace. They will be given eternal life in fellowship with God. And so if you're not a believer, I just want to humbly call you to surrender and switch sides today. Trust in Christ. Come to him by faith. Believe that when he died, he died for you to put away your sin. Believe that when he rose from the dead, he rose for you. Whoever comes to Christ by faith will be welcomed into God's family. But the heavy reality is all those who side with the serpent until the end will fall with the serpent being cast on the last day into what Jesus calls the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Come to Christ. Come to the side of the Lamb. Come to the side of God's people by faith in Christ. Have your sin forgiven and be reconciled to God. Trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who did what none of us could do in and of ourselves. Lord, we thank you that Jesus worked victory over the serpent through his death and resurrection. And we thank you that now in him, we have victory as well. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. Thank you that sin no longer rules over us, but Jesus rules over us. I pray you would help each of us in here this morning, Lord, to um, just seriously engage with uh, these things, Lord. As I said, we have so many things, Lord, that we need to throw off, so many serpent-like things that we need to throw off in our lives. And I pray that you would help us all by the power of your Holy Spirit to make progress in Christ-likeness. Lord, encourage those who are faint-hearted here today, who are struggling with sin. Help our eyes to gaze upon the objective reality of Christ's death and resurrection for them. We uh, look to you, your promises for this coming week, Lord. We, we cannot do it apart from your grace. So we ask you for help in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for a benediction. People of God, hear now these words of blessing from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you.